invite everyone to open your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. We finished Jeremiah, and we are beginning a new series in Hebrew. So we're going to start off in chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. You know, I've always heard my whole life that being a parent is one of the hardest things that you'll ever do and also one of the best things that you'll ever do, and it's true, and you, you don't really know what that means until you experience it. And kid, kids are funny, man. Like, they're really funny. So we, we've been telling Willa, like, uh, you got to be patient, baby. you got to be patient. you ask, you got to be patient. And uh, uh, the other night, we're getting ready for bed, and, and of course, if you're a parent, you know what it's like trying to get your kid to go to bed. Like, it's just... It's like trying to get the Israelites, you know, through the desert. It's like, come on, people. Uh, and so uh, we're telling her, you know, like, okay, get ready for bed. And, of course, um, she come, goes out of her room for some reason and is taking her time. And Mallory goes, Willa, come on, we got to go to bed. And so Willa goes back in there and says, Mom, you need to learn to be patient. <laughs> That's great. Uh, one day in the car, Will and I were talking. Yeah, and <laughs> Don't think we do this all the time just because I'm a pastor, but we were talking about Jesus in the car, right? Um, and, uh, and, and so we're talking about Jesus for some reason or other, and, and, and I asked Will, I said, why, why did Jesus die? Or what did Jesus do? And, and she responds, well, he died. And I'm like, yeah, we're doing a great job as parents. Like, we're doing excellent. Heck yeah, we're teaching her about Jesus. And um, I asked her, well, okay, why did he die? And she said, so we can have Easter. Well, sort of. Yeah. There, right there. Um, I think a lot of times um, what this illustrates, what I want to illustrate, is that, is that we can under, underestimate uh, the gospel or, or, or undervalue how glorious the gospel is, how glorious the new covenant is. So for a lot of people, especially as kids, uh, all that it is is Easter Bunny right, or, or Santa Claus on Christmas. It's all it is. I remember reading a book in college called I Became a Christian and All I Got Was This Lousy T-Shirt. It's kind of talking about this idea. You might hear things like, you can get into heaven for free. I saw a church sign that said, don't think about it, it's free, just accept it. Um, I've heard often, right, you got to get into heaven so you can see your family. And I remember uh, uh, wishing that I lived in the Old Testament so I could see like all these great miracles. Like, it would be so awesome to see you know, the sea parting and uh, uh, the fire come down from heaven and all this kind of stuff. Often, though, in our lives, we just kind of become so familiar with the gospel that it doesn't amaze us like it used to. All of, in all of these ways, we just have this kind of bent that we, we tend to undervalue, undermine how great and how glorious this new covenant is that we're a part of. The problem that we face is how often and how subtly we can undermine how glorious it is. And in Hebrews, the book of Hebrews is written in large part to address that. Uh, it was written to primarily Jews, and these Jews are, are, seem to be facing really hard times. There's persecution, there's suffering, challenges to their faith, and, and they're tempted to kind of give up on, on Christianity, on Jesus, and kind of go back into Judaism, because it was a lot easier and a lot safer to do that. And the writer of Hebrews is, is writing one to warn them like, about the weight of what this means. Like If you give up Christ, this is what this means, but also if you hold on to Christ how worth it it is. 
So Hebrews really is, is a book about Jesus, that he is altogether worthy and worth it. No amount of earthly goods and no amount of earthly suffering ever compromise his beauty and his worth. To turn our backs on him is utter folly. He is far greater and better. That's where we get the title for our new series. The new covenant that Jesus inaugurates is greater and better because Jesus is greater and better. Greater and better than anything in the Old Testament. Greater and better than anything in the entire world. And today, we're going to use these first four verses as a springboard. You know, we're going to do an overview of Hebrews. So we're going to be all throughout the book of Hebrews today. But we're going to use these first few verses to focus on three aspects of who Jesus is and how our covenant with him is greater and better. So let's read in the book of Hebrews, chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. First, in these verses, we're introduced to Jesus, the greater word. Since this is an overview sermon, I won't be getting into like the exegetical details of this passage, talking about meaning of individual words and phrases and that sort of thing. We'll get into that next week. I'm actually going to, like I said, use this as a springboard to look at the major themes of Hebrews. And what we're introduced first to is this idea of Jesus as the authoritative prophetic words. Long ago, verse 1, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by prophets. Right? This indicates that God has used to speak to his people in, in this way, by the prophets. We just finished Jeremiah, right? Jeremiah is one of those prophets that he spoke to his people through. But there's a, a contrast, right? God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. The, the argument is the le from lesser to greater. God used to speak that way, but now he has spoken this way. There's a, a definitive finality to this. A change in instrument. This is why, one reason why Jesus, or not Jesus, the author of Hebrews, we don't really know who the author is, so I'm just going to refer to them as, as the author, but he goes on in verse 5, right? He's writing about Jesus, and then he goes on to compare him in, in, in verse 5 to angels, right? For to which of the angels did God ever say, you're my son, today have I have begotten you? And uh, later on in, in chapter 2 in Hebrews, uh, the writer says that the old covenant was declared by angels. You know, if, if you think about the Old Testament and the way the New Testament reflects on the Old Testament, the, the presence of God was mediated by angels, right? Now, when we think of angels in our culture, sometimes, sometimes maybe often we think of those sweet little naked baby angels. You know what I'm talking about? Uh, Go to your grandma's house. She might have them on her shelf. 
Some of y'all might have them on yourself. You got them from precious moments. Y'all went down to that chapel, wherever it is. It's close to here. I know it's close to here. I've seen the billboard. Y'all went to that precious moments chapel, and y'all got some cute little angel figurines playing their harps. But that's, that's, uh, that's not the idea that the Bible has in mind. I want to read you Ezekiel's vision, where the angels, kind of angels that he saw. They had a human likeness, but each had four faces, and each of them had four wings. Their legs were straight, and the soles of their feet were like the sole of a calf's foot. As for the likeness of their faces, each had a human face. The four had the face of a lion on the right side, the four had the face of an ox on the left side, and the four had the face of an eagle. I don't think Precious Moments has released that collection yet. <laughs> but that's, that's the thing. Like These things are terrifying. Anytime a human encounters an angel in Scripture, they tremble with fear. Right? Angels are the most powerful created beings. They are the messengers through whom God spoke. And this is what the author of Hebrews concludes. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? God is not speaking through powerfully created beings anymore. He has spoken through the Son. David Wells wrote, In Jesus, the permanent and final unveiling of God has taken place. This is also one reason why the author of Hebrews goes on to compare Jesus and Moses. Right In chapter 3 he says, For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. As much more glory as the builder of a house has more than the house itself. You know, the, the temptation, if, especially if you're a Jew in the first century, and, and not really temptation, but also one of the great challenges was how much weight do we give the words of Moses as compared to Jesus? Right? That's why you have all these various heresies, right? In um, Galatians, Romans, Colossians, them kind of subjecting themselves to the words of Moses um, kind of as... as contradiction to what the words of Jesus are. But here's the point that the author of Hebrews is making. You think Moses gave an authoritative word? I mean, yeah, it was, it was mediated, declared by angels. That's, that's pretty authoritative. But here is the direct word from the mouth of the one who created angels. Chapter 1, verse 2. Through whom he also created angels. The world. This message is not mediated by angels. This is the Son of God Himself speaking to His people. That's why Hebrews turns out to be one of the most terrifying books of the Bible, in my opinion, because of all these really um, scary warnings that he issues. Chapter 4, he, um, he, ar- he argues, while the promise of entering His rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. And, and he, goes on, he goes on, he said, Let us strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience, for the Word of God is living and active. That's, that passage we love, the Word of God is living and active, is a judgment passage. 
And, and he does this in several places, in chapter 6, chapter 10. Because Jesus is the greater word, because it's his words coming straight from him, ignoring him or rejecting him, can only bring about great wrath. In other words, there's an intensification that's happening. You think getting stoned to death under the law of Moses was bad? The judgment for rejecting the Son is far, far, far more severe. But here's the thing. There's an intensification in the judgment, in the punishment. There's also an intensification of grace. Chapter 2, God bore witness to this message, the gospel, by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to His will. Chapter 4, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Chapter 6, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. And on and on and on. This quote is normally attributed to John Bunyan, but is probably written by this uh, 18th century hymnist uh, named John Berridge. He wrote, Run, John, run, the law demands but gives neither feet nor hands. Better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. What the prophets could not do to help the people of Israel. Jeremiah was a faithful prophet, but his message failed. Right? He's saying, repent or the Babylonians are coming, and they didn't listen. Right? What the prophets failed to do to help the people of Israel, Jesus accomplishes. Jesus doesn't invalidate or devalue the prophets. He completes them. This is why the writer says in chapter 12 that you have come to the sprinkled blood. This is interesting. He says that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The meaning of all the prophets find their locus in the person and work of Jesus Christ. What he speaks into his people's lives happens. He is the final definitive word. All things are filtered through him. He is the greater word. Second, we see Jesus, the greater image. Verse 2, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by a son whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And if he, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. These verses tell us something about the nature of Jesus. So what it, we say, the correct theology, is that Jesus shares two natures. He's one person, but he has two natures. And one nature that Jesus shares is that he is God. Not a God, not part of God, but He is God. That's when he, he says He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. Paul says as much in Philippians 2 uh, that Jesus shares the form of God. The Nicene Creed says Jesus is very God of very God. That, that Jesus is God undergirds all of Hebrews. Like just in these few verses, he's creator, right? Through whom he created all things, upholds the universe. I mean, that's, that's God language. 
He's set apart from angels. He's not just this powerfully created being, which, by the way, to me is, is one of the greatest apologetics against, say, Mormonism or Jehovah's Witnesses, is, is in the gospel, God's not sending someone else to do his dirty work. He's coming in himself. Anyway, even, even the descriptions of Jesus being a merciful and faithful high priest found later are descriptions of God. Stephen Wellham wrote, The Logos, who became a man, is no mere personification of God, but a person who has existed from all eternity with God. In other words, what the writer of Hebrews is showing is what is accomplished by Jesus can only be accomplished by God. Jesus is God. That's his nature. And yet he also has a second nature. He is He's human. So he perfectly reveals the nature of God. He is the, the radiance of the glory of God, an exact imprint of his nature, and he perfectly images man. Chapter 2, verse 14. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity. Verse 17. For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way. Fully in nature, God. Fully in nature, man. In every conceivable way. At all times. What this means is what the author writes later in chapter 4, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Because Jesus shares your humanity, your full humanity, there is nothing that you bring to him that he does not say, I don't understand that. In the movie Frozen, Olaf the Snowman, if you hate the movie Frozen, and I'm not, whatever, uh, you might like Olaf anyway. Like He's just a likable guy, right? He's just with the wrong crowd. Uh, he loves summer. He loves summer. But he loves everything about summer. The sun, the heat, the flowers, all that. But he's never experienced it. Jesus experienced the full range of what it means to be human. And think about this. At one point, God had never experienced temptation. James tells us that God cannot be tempted. He just can't. There are many things that God can't do. One is he can't sin and he can't be tempted. But in Jesus, by virtue of his humanity, God has experienced temptation. Isn't that remarkable? A guy named Don MacLeod said it this way. Before and apart from the Incarnation, God knew such things by observation. Yet this is what the Incarnation made possible for God. Real, personal experience of being human. In Christ, God lives a truly human experience. The writer of Hebrews insists that this God of the New Covenant sympathizes with our weaknesses and our temptations. Far and away, the picture that we normally have of God just being disappointed in us all the time. 
And you know what makes this better is because this was not necessarily true in the Old Testament. That's what makes the new covenant so much better. The God who, who dwells with us understands the distress of temptation. I can't emphasize that enough. There's an intensification, right? In the Old Testament, God dwelt among His people, but there was this tension because though He wanted to dwell among them, His presence was threatening to them because of their sin. God in the New Covenant isn't just dwelling among us, but within the hearts of sinful people as one who now shares their humanity. Why in the world would you want to go back to the Old Testament? Why abandon a God this good? You know, I've, I've had many friends um, turn their backs on the faith. And I, I've pondered a lot the reasons why. But I think what every person who, who calls themselves a Christian must fall back on is, is he not good? Is he not worth holding on to? Isn't he just incredibly, deeply, consistently very good? This is why chapter 11, we have the hall of faith, right? Not hall of fame, hall of faith, you know what I mean? The chapter that lists all those several biblical characters to describe the nature of faith. He writes in that chapter, right? He, he kind of concludes that chapter. He says, Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with a the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. So he, he writes about the people who live by faith. And you know what he says about Jesus right after this in, in chapter 12? You guys know this verse. Let us look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Why is that connection important? Because whatever we go through for Jesus, he also endured. The Lord Jesus does not call us to go through anything that he himself has not already done or endured on our behalf. There is no pain you know that Jesus has not truly tasted. He is the greater image. Lastly, we see Jesus, the greater king priest. In the Old Testament, the kingship and the priesthood were two separate things. So a priest could not become king, and a king could not be a priest you are familiar with the story of Saul. Saul tries to act like a priest at one point, and it does not turn out well for him. But both of these offices are now united in Christ. Look at, the, at verse 3 there in the middle. After making purification for sins, priest, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, king. That Jesus is the greater priest is tied directly into what we just talked about, about him being the perfect image bearer. These, those two points have significant overlap. Uh, in chapter 2, verse 17 again, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make 
propitiation for the sins of the people. Because he's a greater priest, he doesn't enter into some earthly tabernacle as glorious as it is. He enters into heaven itself. Uh, Chapter 4, verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. He's the greater high priest who doesn't enter by the virtue of blood of goats and animals, but by virtue of himself. Isn't that, isn't that thought stunning? If I had the thought that I'm going to enter the presence of God by virtue of me, that's wickedly arrogant. But Jesus says, here I am. Verse, chapter 9, verse 12. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Again, the author of Hebrews is asking by implication, you're tempted to abandon Christ and go back to this? You want to go back to the old priesthood? I don't mean to throw under the bus. She's awesome. Uh, But we we cooked steaks, right? We had some great steaks the other night. They were great. And, you know, Will will have some crackers on her plate, and she'll look at the steak, and she'll go, yuck! Are you crazy? This is, like, way better. What? What is wrong with you? Right? We'll teach her. But Jesus is better in every way. and It makes no sense whatsoever to go to anything else. And not only is Jesus better, but his covenant is better. The writer says in chapter 10, For since the law was but a shadow of the things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Again, this is like preferring the smell of the grill to actually eating the steak, right? The smoke indicates that something delicious is happening. Oh, it's coming. That's the Old Testament. Oh boy, you better get ready. It's going to be good. And then the temptation would be wanting to stay in the Old Covenant is like, you know what, steak's off, but I'm just going to try to inhale all this smoke uh, to, as my food today. Like, dude, the substance is here. What are you doing? Jesus does away with all the ritual and all the right, and he offers us something better. He's the greater priest, and his priesthood is intimately tied to his kingship. In chapter 6, we read in verse 19, we, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. He's talking about Jesus being a priest. Having become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek appears to Abraham back in Genesis. And like in that chapter, Abraham fights all these pagan kings. He fights them and he defeats them. And, and you're not expecting any like other kind of king to come out besides these these wicked kings but here's this guy who shows up who is both king and priest of Yahweh and then he just disappears and the writer of Hebrews is showing how Melchizedek is actually a shadow of Christ and the argument is we now have a greater Melchizedek who has no beginning and no end his priesthood and his kingship are eternal Think about it this way. In Christ, God dwells forever 
as a human over creation. Like Christ will be human forever. He's human right now. And he's ruling and reigning over all creation. It's Adam's original purpose restored. If this is so, then not only is his redemption perfect, but his rule over your life is perfect. Without flaw. Without mishap, without accident, his reign over the lives of these Jews was perfect, and his rule over your life is perfect. This, and, and the author of Hebrews writes many shocking things, in my opinion. And this, nothing, well, one of the most shocking is chapter 10, verse 32. And he's, he's encouraging them by saying this. He says, But recall the former days. When after you were enlightened, after you were saved, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, listen to this, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. It's a, a good testimony. I wonder how many of us Americans would be good at that. But here's the thing about that description. From a worldly point of view, living like that is nonsense. It is not the good life. It only makes sense, and it's only true, and it's only good if Jesus is a perfect priest king, perfectly ruling over our lives. And from there, that's the good life. All that Jesus is, that the writer of Hebrews is showing us, is what he says in chapter 7, that he is the guarantor of a better covenant. Far and away better. And comparably better. This is exactly what the Lord's table is about. We today are a part of a greater and better covenant because our greater merciful and faithful high priest. This is only possible because God the Son became a man 2,000 years ago, walked dirty streets, living a perfect and holy life. And that man suffered and died on a cross under the wrath of God the Father. But that man, God, reigns and rules today over this table over your lives, over this church. You're a part of this new covenant. How perfect is he? I want to invite our deacons to come forward this morning. This table is for broken and weary sinners. Are you guilty?
Are you broken? Are you struggling? This is for you. This is where Jesus invites you all over again to receive all that He is for you. Perfect sacrifice for your sins. Merciful, faithful, sympathetic high priest. King. And He is glad to be so. This table is for all baptized believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you are not baptized or you are not a believer, let it pass. Our prayer for you this morning is that you come to find by faith how wonderful and how great of a king this Jesus is. And that you would live your life under his lordship. This morning, what we'll do is I'll give um, the bread to our, our deacons, and the deacons will pass it around, and, and I just ask you to wait to take it, because we'll, we'll take it all together. I'll read scripture, and we'll take it all together, and we'll do the same thing with the cup. But I, I want to invite you to just spend this time in prayer, in repentance, but also in hope, this, this great hope that we have in Christ.